for the Shire, coming home through Tolkien, Tarot and Yin. Join us, Molly and Libby, as we seek to explore every crevice of Middle-earth with an archetypal lens. My Gavannon, our beautiful fellowship, welcome to For the Shire, coming home through Tolkien, Tarot and Jung. And today uh, we are going to be talking about dreams. Uh, and I must admit that this is a episode that I am slightly nervous for, purely because dreaming and dream analysis is something that I'm not very familiar with. Um, I think I've said this before um, to you, Libby, um, and to maybe people that know me who are listening, that um, I have weird and wacky dreams and I never seem to remember them. So yeah, I'm a little bit nervous because this is not something that I am used to doing, but I am extremely excited and uh, I'm going to invite Libby to maybe speak to us a little bit about what dreams are, <laughs> where they come from, and why we're analysing them today. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what dreams are. Mm, I'm really struck by that quote from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Such things are what dreams are made of. And I always kind of return to that when I feel the sense of, ah, yeah, this is what dreams are made of. And we talked to it last episode about the, the place where form emerges from the collective unconscious. And we talked about that from tarot perspective, from the creation of Lord of the Rings itself. But I'm gonna I'm gonna name more specifically within the tantric tradition. It is the primordial level of the word. So uh, it's called the para state where vibration first becomes crystallized into form and i when i think of the collective unconscious i think of this great dark vast pool where dreams are drifting across the surface like mist but they're also below the stillness of the waters and they are sinking right, right, right down into the murky depths beneath. So this whole pool of how images are being created. And I mean, I can, my hand has come alive actually, as I'm talking about this, my, the tips of my fingers are vibrating because I really feel this sense of plunging your hand down into, into a pond, into a kind of swamp and scooping out what's the bottom and for me that's really what a dream excavation is getting to put your hands into the murkiness and pull something out and as that that mud that blackness slips through your fingers you know what what it is that you're left holding I think is um what really looking at our dreams means because often dreams do feel very murky and they do feel very unclarified but if we let ourselves look at them and if we find ways to remember them, because as you said, it's, it's not always easy. Um, 
what we're left holding with is the thing that we then take forward with us because the unconscious is pointing us in ways there's for me there's a sense that the unconscious knows before we know and there's a lot of dreams in Tolkien and I think that's where he's being very astute with the dreams that he weaves into the narrative because they're pointing both from a narrative device to things that are happening or have happened, real things, but they're also pointing towards um, character development. And yeah, that's used as a device within the story, but it is also what dreams are doing for us. It's, it's, it's that bit before, but the bit before we know, which I think is also tarot, right? It's the, the cards are so often pointing, you know, to the thing that is just beyond our awareness. And it, they helped, the cards help to clarify the mist. They help to bring something into greater form. So I do think you're working with it with tarot reading. I think it's exactly the same. Yeah, I was going to say that the way that I uh, access the, the level of dream is through tarot. I remember being on a um, a course where we were invited to do uh, some work with our dreams. And because I hadn't had any or that I could remember in the in, at that particular time, I instead asked if I could pull a tarot card instead. And uh, the results uh, were just as fruitful and meaningful. But yeah, I really love the way that dreams in Tolkien or in Lord of the Rings um, both act as, like you said, a literary t device to um, to allow the reader to uh, have an insight into what might be coming, um, to have an insight into the development of the character, but also they evoke deeper meaning for us as we read them, as we connect to them. And, you know, Tolkien said that in dream, strange powers of the mind may be unlocked. So he was already, you know, aware of what the, <clears throat> sorry, aware of what the power of the dream could evoke in both his characters and in the readers. So, yeah, I am really excited to... Mm -hmm delve into the world of dreams and we're going to be um we're going to be looking at uh, two particular dreams from um from frodo uh, yeah. and we are going to be looking at the dreams that he has uh, in the house of tom bombadil i'm wondering libby if you want to say anything before i take us into a meditation I'm just going to say a little bit more about Tolkien before we get into the dream realm itself, because I think once you've done this meditation, I would I really don't know where we're going to go either. So I have a kind of nervous anticipation too. But once we're in that realm, you know, I want Psyche to be what's, what's speaking and responding and what I'm about to say now isn't. It's me having a fact that I want to share, which is, um, or actually it's me having a thought that I want to share which is that, you know, I think it's very worth noting how important dreams are in Lord of the Rings and how often Tolkien punctuates um, the narrative with them. Because Tolkien himself, you know, being in the world, you couldn't be in less of a dreamer 
um, way of life, being a professor at Oxford, um, you know, it's very much in the thinking attribute of um, Psyche. And it's the realm that I'm in now, you know, the bit where it said, I've got a fact I want to share. You know, he is someone that had to know things deeply, know um, the ins and outs of linguistics. Um, and obviously that informed lots of a lot of the rings as well. And so in the world, he was really had to be a thinking person. But I think his celebration of dreams through the narrative points to how he was also a feeling person. Um, and these are, you know, two opposing aspects of the ego, the thinking function, the feeling function. And in, in um, Lord of the Rings, you know, Frodo really represents the thinking function and Sam really represents the feeling function. But Frodo's individuation journey is actually from thinker to feeler. You know, when he finally boards that boat to the undying land, he is dissolved into the feeling aspect. And I think dreams actually point his way there. The dreams are what guide his way there. So I see Tolkien's longing to get to be more and more of a feeling person himself, whilst, you know, he'd have been at home writing these stories and weaving these dreams and then having to go and don his, what are those hats called? You know, my brain just went thinking cap. <laughs> you would have yeah. to don his thinking cap, but he'd have had to put his thinking cap on and go and talk to lots of important people about important things and teach young minds about you know various different facts. But but then his real the richness of his experience was in coming to draw from drawing all of the mythology from. But that's enough of the thinking function, I think, and I'm certainly ready to drop into the feeling if you are ready to guide us there. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to uh, over-explain uh, what I'm about to do, as you said, because we do want to drop into the feeling function and kind of, um, yeah, not over-analyze, but I just wanted to name that this is the meditation that I use when I am giving a reading for someone and it's the meditation that we both do in order to sink more deeply into the level of uh, symbol and myth. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to name that that is what we're doing. Um, so I invite you if you are able to, to come to stillness and maybe if you can or feel comfortable to bring your gaze lower or even close your eyes and just begin to bring awareness to your breath notice the expansion of your chest as you inhale and the subtle release of exhale. Allow your attention to trace the cycle of the breath
As it flows from expansion to release, inhale to exhale. And keeping your awareness and attention on the steady rhythm of your breath. I invite you to bring the image of a beach to the forefront of your mind. Standing on a beach, the sun is high in the sky as if it's about midday. And you might like to imagine what it feels like to have stones or sand between your toes. And what it feels like to have the wind whipping around your skin. And the sea salt air on your lips. And on your next exhale, just begin to imagine the sun moving across the sky as if time were passing. With each exhale, the sun moves closer to the afternoon to the early evening. With each exhale, the sky transforms from blue to radiant pinks and oranges. And the sun even bigger now, sat on the line where the sky meets the sea. And when you feel ready, just allow the sun to gently dip below the horizon. still standing on the same beach, but now illuminated by a blanket of stars, speckled across a midnight blue sky. And you tilt your head backwards to Take in this blanket of stars and you notice that some of the stars are seemingly 
getting bigger, brighter and closer. Until you realise that they are not stars at all, but shiny silver threads floating and dancing only a couple of feet away from you. The threads dance amongst each other as they form a larger tapestry. Each thread is a memory, a dream, a moment in time, an aspect of you weaving amongst each other to create the tapestry of your being. And you might imagine what it would feel like to reach your hand in front of you and touch and trace your fingers along the shining silver threads. There might be threads that wish to be seen, wish to be noticed. When we enter this space, the space of the watery unconscious, the space from which tarot, myth, Lord of the Rings emerges, we are invited to gently become curious about tugging on threads so that they may reveal more of us to us as they unfold more of ourselves so that we may see our wholeness. And just know that this image of the shining silver threads is always available, but for now just simply allow it to melt into the blackness behind your eyes. And begin the homeward journey to your breath, bringing your awareness back to where we started. To the feeling of expansion and the subtle release of exhale. And when you're ready, you may open your eyes. Thank you so much, Molly.
Oh, I'm really, I've got to let myself come back, but not come too far back. And I will say to the listeners, as I say it to myself, maybe in listening to this podcast, you let yourself drift between being really deep in the other realm versus you know, really listening with the front of your brain, really thinking. It might float between the two, as I'm sure Molly and I will, um, but trusting that 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 expanded place with the threads surrounding you is is still just within reach. Molly, do you want to read Frodo's dream? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Which one would you like to start with? The first one. So the one he has in the first night at Bombadil's with the moon rising. Yes. So. Hmm. It seemed to Friday that he was lifted up. And passing over, he saw that these rock walls, a circle of hills, and that within it, was a plain and in the midst of the plain stood a pinnacle of stone like a vast tower but not made by hands on its top stood the figure of a man the moon as it rose seemed to hang for a moment above his head and glistened in his white hair as the wind stirred it Up from the dark plain below came the crying of fell voices and the howling of many wolves. Suddenly, a shadow, like the shape of great wings, passed across the moon. The figure lifted his arms and a light flashed from the staff that he wielded. A mighty eagle swept down and bore him away. The voices wailed and the wolves yammered. There was a noise like a strong wind blowing and on it was borne the sound of hooves galloping, galloping, galloping from the east. Black riders, thought Frodo as he wakened with the hooves still echoing in his mind. He wondered if he would ever again have the courage to leave the safety of these stone walls. He lay motionless, still listening, but all was now silent and at last he turned and fell asleep again and wandered into some other unremembered dream. So if we were a an analysis and an analysand, which isn't language I particularly love, but it's the Jungian language um, for when two people are in relationship talking about dreams and that was your dream. What feels really alive from it for you now reading it? Mm. Um, I think for me, the thing that feels the most alive is the um the description of the landscape um that feels really 
um, it feels really vibrant in my mind. Like I can, I can almost feel the wind. And you know, as I dropped us into that meditation, there was the, the, um, yeah, this the sensation of feeling the wind, and that's quite alive for me right now. And the um, the the moon that hangs for a moment above the head. I think for me, just the the landscape feels really vibrant. Mm. And what um, in what way is it vibrant? Is it being supportive? Is it being wild? Mm. Mm. It feels more wild than supportive. Mm. And I'm not sure if wild is the exact term, but if they if wild and supportive were a scale, <laughs> it would be more wild than supportive. Um is it somewhere you want to be? It feels like slightly dangerous when you have that uh, I've kind of got this feeling of like I'm imagining myself back at home standing on the seafront in Portsmouth when it's like really really stormy and there's an exhilaration there um for being in like this witness of kind of this great force but at the same time it's you know is utterly terrifying and then there's this kind of realization of like oh, okay, this is, yeah, not, you know, this is exhilarating, but potentially not safe. Mm. Can you feel the landscape beneath your feet? No. Where do you feel it? At all. Mm. Where do you feel it? I feel it in my shoulders. Mm. Like this, um, yeah. And maybe, and maybe the image of the imagery of the wings is really coming through as as I feel that kind of this extension from from my shoulders and my arms are kind of wanting to reach out. Um, and again, I've got this image of standing on the seafront and like allowing the wind to go through my fingers. Um, and so maybe the yeah, maybe the intensity or the vibrancy of the image is not from Frodo's perspective of the landscape, but is more from the the wings. Mm, yeah, I, I really felt that beneath my arms as well before you raised yours and said the wind beneath them. But yeah, that sense of letting yourself yield into that force. You know, you're speaking of being on Portsmouth Seafront, which I, of course, also know and love. Um, and I'm picturing myself on the Welsh hills with my arms outstretched and feeling like I could be about to take off, I could be about to be swept away um, and wanting to let that happen whilst also wanting to stay, longing to still have that groundedness. Um, mm. And I, I feel for Frodo, he is being swept along, isn't he, by, by Dharma, by whatever this force is that's propelling the story. And even from Tolkien himself, you know, Tolkien is throwing Frodo into this narrative, this hobbit who, uh, you know, the, the way of their people is two feet on the ground. Um, and so being swept up, there is a quote, isn't there? Well, there's, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your front door. 
I was just um, <laughs> if you don't keep your feet there's no knowing where you might be swept off to and I know we've spoke that that quote before but it's one of the best so and particularly relevant to that feeling of being swept away yeah um, yeah yeah and I think that I mean the eagle is what felt very alive for me um reading it back this I feel this um this marriage of the image of the moon with the the eagle cutting across it I feel that being really poignant and I wonder if you would speak to this symbology of of moon particularly the slither you know the the first creeping back of the moon after the dark I think there's a lot of resonance in that what's the language here um he saw the young moon rising under its thin light there loomed before him a black wall of rock I mean the the slither that first slither of the moon that we get might be my favorite moon mm. um it's like a secret being spoken from the dark and yeah then that cutting across of the wings for me you know really silhouetted against that yeah I love the um I just love I mean I love the moon generally mm. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of thinking about the moon especially in tarot being the uh, archetype of the unconscious, um, the experience of being in the liminal space between dreams, being in this, um, yeah, this the, this space of uh, shadowiness, um, and I kind of always picture the space of the moon. Like if I'm pulling the card, I like to describe. Okay, when we're walking by the light of the moon everything feels sometimes a bit distorted and you know the light is reflecting the moon is reflecting you know the the solar brilliance of consciousness but it is distorted through the moon um and so yeah that image of um the eagle being uh highlighted by the light of the moon this kind of reflection almost a glimpse and then of course it's the sliver so even more of this just this glimpse of of consciousness this glimpse of the light that is reflected from the sun that's kind of what i'm i'm getting yeah um, like like a moment of respite and of course in the dream the wings that are across the shadow it is the the moment of respite as as we know that the dream is who the dream is speaking to yeah so the dream is showing us what happens to Gandalf which of course we get to see in the films but in the book um it's experienced here and then it's recounted by Gandalf we never experience it in the here and now um and I have really got a sense of the space between one the space between this solar radiance of consciousness of the sun um just being able to hit this slither of the moon and then the the symbol of the eagle itself being in that space between I'm also going to name something in that your for me your sound is distorting which means your voice is um wobbling occasionally so I'm naming it because it the listeners might be hearing it too but for me, it's giving a really trippy experience. So it feels really <laughs> apt. <laughs> okay. or, um, or maybe it's just me. Maybe I am just, you know. Okay. Mm. 
What do you think about the ego? Hmm. Yeah, I think being, you know, being in the space of Lord of the Rings, um, I see the eagle p potentially differently to someone who just sees the symbol of an eagle, like the actual animal. You know, you we associate it with freedom, with majesty, um, this, you know, this feeling of... Um, height i get this kind of feeling of spaciousness when i think of this eagle being at a really great height and then of course knowing um that it isn't just an eagle that it's this you know um something much greater feels really freeing it feels really um powerful yeah mm. what about you yeah i'm just thinking how for frodo you know, if he's also, say he's also experiencing this sense of expanded um, potentiality, which I kind of feel like what that energy of having wind beneath us um, speaks to. And then the both the moon, the moon, the first slither of the moon after the dark, and then this bird crossing, it's, they seem like real symbols of hope. And I wonder what that feels like for Frodo because in this point in the narrative, he still thinks he's walking the ring to Brie. <laughs> he doesn't even, you know, know everything else that's going to be happening. And so I wonder how much these, these dream images are what helps to crystallize the, what's happening in his unconscious. And I think what's happening is his unconscious is already starting to accept and understand that there's a greater journey that he's that he's already embarked on and and being the swept up in that whilst consciously he's of course still going well we're gonna go to Brie and meet Gandalf and jobs are good and um and even that is terrifying because of course there's black riders right behind them and I feel you know this what does it say at the end this strong wind blowing and on it was born the sound of hooves galloping 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 from the east and so this sense of what is right behind you you know that's where he is he's terrified of that and he's trying to get to the next place which is which is Brie um and yet unconsciously these symbols are speaking to a, a greater journey and giving mm -hmm. him hope and him giving him faith that that will also be Okay. And of course, I didn't think about this actually, because of course, in the dream, we think we're seeing the eagle go and take Gandalf, but Frodo will also be born by an eagle. Uh, I'm glad I'm here with you, Samwise Ganji, here at the end of all things, you know, when Frodo thinks that him and Sam are going to die on the side of the mountain, that's when mm -hmm. the eagles appear. And I'm really, you know, that the experience of being carried by the eagle you know speaking to that sense of the density of wind of air being something that carries us along and that's what he would have also felt being suspended in air carried by the eagles and I really love the language of being born as in you know born on the back of an eagle mm -hmm. as well as this this image from the dream the sound from the dream of the wind blowing the, and, and on it was born the sound of hooves. 
Oh yeah, I really love that. And you know the um, how the element of wind plays such a big part in a lot of Frodo's dreams. Like the uh, as we go through the dreams, there's a lot of language of wind and being swept away. And then as we move towards, you know, him um, traveling towards Mordor. Um, his dreams become more fiery mm. and so I think it's a really beautiful image that you know he he almost um, alchem- his dreams alchemize from wind to fire as he gets closer and closer to um, uh, to destroying the ring and then that kind of last moment it goes back to wind again um, mm. I love that imagery yeah I'm really struck as well by just to stay with the eagles it, the language of the dream is suddenly a shadow like the shape of great wings passed across the moon. And I, I think it's important to talk about shadow as can also be a token of hope. Shadow doesn't always have to be the darkness or the negative aspects within the unconscious. It's just what is in the unconscious. And so that whole experience that Frodo is going to have of, of moving from wind and I feel like it's it's quite disparate, isn't it? Um, wind, you know, it's almost like he's drifting on something and, and things are being endlessly revealed by the movement of wind compared to fire, where by the time he's having those fire dreams, as he gets closer and closer to Mordor, he is in the realm of shadow. He's already subsumed by um, by shadow and becoming more, you know, focused on the ring and actually his his senses become blinded to all else but the ring don't they he says i can no longer um what is it i can no longer taste water um oh, i wish i could remember it because it's a beautiful quote there's nothing he says there's nothing that stands between me now me and the wheel of fire so again also this sense of being between things and I, I just feel it really prevalently in the dream, this liminal space, but that liminal space becomes less and less, or maybe it's that the liminal space becomes all that it holds eventually is Frodo and the ring and, you know, that just being fire, the whole liminal space being filled with fire, mm. which is certainly not a dream that I would like to have. No, I get this real image of... um in the Lord of the Rings tarot deck that I have by Fix Art, the um, and I've shared this image on Instagram of the Ten of Swords, which is an image of the ring um, melting into the lava. And I think there's a really poignant um, point of like the liminal space being like that's the circle and the space between, but that all being fire and the fact that the Ten of Swords speaks to the... Um, the last card in the development of the thinking function. And we talked about Frodo, like releasing that. Hmm. Yeah. And this, again, the strong wind blowing and on it was born the sound of hooves galloping, galloping, galloping from the East. The East is, you know, as he moves into the East, that's when the, the, the alchemy with fire happens and the wind is blowing him there. You know, that's, where he's headed isn't it and it's as he moves closer to the center of the east that his dreams are 
transformed his 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 waking experience is transformed um and in fact his waking and his sleeping experience are the same they are all within that realm of fire i'm also really struck by stone in the dream a black wall of rock pierced by a dark arch like a great gate over he saw that the rock wall was a circle of hills. In the midst of the plain stood a pinnacle of stone. And yeah, I think I'm really feeling stone as the earth element, which, you know, normally I think of earth as being sinking my fingers into soil, um, roots growing down. Um, but stone is also earth. And I wonder what, yeah. If, if stone's doing anything to your experience of the dream. Mm, yeah, I, I think I do feel the element of earth, but more so I feel a rigidity in the stone, uh, in the tower. You know, I think I wonder if that's probably the tallest thing or the biggest like thing that Frodo will have seen by then. You know, like it's this huge, great tower um, and this, yeah. So less like an individual stone and more about the greatness of it uh, feels really poignant to me. Um, yeah, and I've just got this image of, and I think it's, uh, I'm going to talk about the film just because of the imagery that I have of um, as Saruman instructs the orcs to like rip down the forest around it to build um to build um with you know with stone and with metal and the um dichotomy or the the tension between like the what feels like the abundant nourishing element of earth compared to the more solidified and um i'm not gonna say grounding but this really strong and powerful um expression of earth and so that's yeah, that's kind of what's coming up for me, this, like, the dichotomy between the two. Like like you said, you would normally think of, like, Earth as, like, you know, sinking your fingers into soil or, or the flower or the roots. And yet we have this really, um, yeah, this strong expression of what is also Earth. Um, I'm not sure if I like it. <laughs> mm. I mean, I really like it because I've been doing liver embodiments. <laughs> so, and I'm using rock as a gateway. I'm surrounded by rocks here. Um, rock as a gateway to um, liver because it's this holding place of minerals and sustenance, which is what stone also is. Um, but I'm also really thinking in a kind of premonition sense of what Frodo's going to walk through and the places where they do traverse rock so through the mines of moria and then through the Eamon newell which is where they first meet gollum um you know are confronted with gollum so con this confrontation with shadow then shadow leads them out through this impassable labyrinth of razor sharp rocks uh and then of course mordor is also a place of rock but i feel like mordor is in a kind of shingle like it exploded shards of mountain and that sharpness that rock has as well as well as you know then then having to walk up the rocky slopes of um mount doom um i'm really feeling the pull of another dream 
And I think it's from being on the slopes of a mountain and also this whispering of the wind. And I wonder if you're happy for us to drift there. I would say before we go there that as you've spoken to, you know, the, the different dreams that people have, Frodo has many dreams in um, The Lord of the Rings. But when we work with dream, the, the, the dream ego is not necessarily always what is, you know, the conscious ego in the dreamer. So it's not like, oh, I'm having a dream. And so my experience in that dream is, you know, the most clarified version of me. Often the dream ego is what's in shadow. Um, which I think we've already kind of spoken to with this dream with Frodo that he unconsciously knows where he's going, but the conscious Frodo is still going, right, well, let's have some breakfast and head on up to Bree where Gandalf's waiting for us. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the deeper inner knowing is what's in the dream. So the dream ego is actually, you know, a step ahead. Um, oh, I, I, yeah, sorry, I'm just going to, and add to the sliver of moon there you know like this like it's such a small sliver and i wonder if there's a um an unconscious a conscious but like you said like this um like the unconscious knows but it's just the tiniest bit that it's trying to let frodo understand you know like um the imagery of a full moon might might um describe a uh a deeper knowing or like that Frodo might have an inkling by now, but really he he has no no idea, yeah, uh, because it's just this small reflection. Sorry, continue. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the moon then as intuition, and it's um, the the brightness of our intuition of of its shakti of that which we're moving towards when it's full. You know, that's really in deep deep trust or where our intuition is drawing us. Um, I mean, one of my I love a half moon as well. It's half moon today actually. And um, I walked up the hill earlier and came over the top and the um, half moon was rising in the, the blue sky. Um, I love that from the, you know, in, from a non-dual perspective of what is half in light and what is half in dark. But yeah, then I feel like that in, intuition of the slither of the moon it being this very, the very beginning of knowing, the very beginning of being able to not look directly at something, but be able to see it at the periphery of our awareness. Mm, maybe an ace of wands moment, mm. first spark of intuition. Mm. Um, and I'm just, I, I spoke to that because what we have in this story immediately after Frodo's dream is Pippin's dream and Mary's dream. And then Sam, uh, Sam slept through the night in deep content if logs are contented. And so just this, I, I, point towards it all the time and we will do an episode on the four hobbits as a single ego a single expression of consciousness and um but they're representing the four different aspects of the ego and i think it's nice to remember then that actually collectively we could look at all four of those dreams or those non-dreams as the same experience but different parts of an individual experiencing different parts of themselves through those four dreams um but another time and there is another dream which Frodo has in the house of Tom Bombadil. We may return there, but a listener has gifted us a dream, which is not just a dream, but it's a Tolkien dream, uh, which is is happening from that place which Tolkien was drawing from, from the same pool of the collective unconscious where Tolkien was weaving. And 
whenever I have Tolkien dreams, they've always been at really significant parts of kind of transformative experiences. Um, and I have had whole sessions with my my therapist where we'll, ju- I mean, we're always just talking about dreams, but talk about Lord of the Rings through my, my dreams. Um, and have you ever dreamt of talking? I don't think, oh, I mean, probably, but like I said, I, I'm not particularly great at remembering them. I think I keep, I keep, uh, my diary next to my, um, my bed and, uh, have been trying more and more, especially as we've been starting on this podcast. But um, there haven't been any where I've been struck by talkingness, mm. but there have probably been inklings of it. Yeah, I would say from from my experience of dreams, which is only ever one person's experience, but I call them dreams with a capital D. When you have a dream that you do go, oh God, I should really write that down. Um, and I think, you know, the dreams that shape us is a, is about that, you know, the, the dream, the podcast, um, sorry, the, Steve, who wrote the music for our podcast, his podcast, the dreams that shape us, you know, really celebrating that. Yeah. And we can't remember all of our dreams and we don't need to, but the ones that we do remember and that we do choose to crystallize are important. And I will just say that often I will voice record my dreams, um, because I don't always want to pull myself out so much that I have to go and turn a light on and write them all down. Sometimes when I do that, they are much more poetic. Um, but it's actually, I find it really beneficial to have my voice, um, telling me the dream, which I then will listen to later and then write it down. Um, but that doesn't work for everyone because some people really don't want to have to pick their phone up, um, in that space between slumber and, uh, and wake, waking life. Okay, so our dreamer's dream. Do you want to read it or shall I? Can you read it? Okay, let me just, um, well, I wrote it out. It just disappeared on my computer, but I have written it by hand. And so I'll read that, but I can't always read my own writing. Um, the, what, another great way to work with dreams is to give them a title. And this dream does have a title, which is, If Faramir Had No Face and Drove a Kia which sounds so funny. And then it's so not a funny dream. (laughs) But I also like that it is, I've got a a funny title, especially when you then contrast that with what the dream's holding. So (sighs) just letting myself settle before I share this dream, which we're so grateful to have been gifted for the podcast as well. It is safe again. You are safe again, whole. From the rear seat of the sleek gray SUV, the path down the mountain reveals itself, gently sloping through the barren boulder field before plunging directly into the withered leafless forest. Last sentinels, arms outstretched, ready to welcome a lost generation that they know deep in their roots may never return. Beyond that, only fog, just as there always seems to have been. The faceless others in the car confidently proclaim safety as you cross the threshold into the forest. And although you do not speak, you know the truth from somewhere. You cannot escape him. He is part of you. You cannot escape your darkness. 
Time sense quickly drops away in the thick clinging shroud as the sun sets over the lonely shoulder of the mountain. You are aware that every right turn only follows a sharp left and from the winds blowing the wisps of fog, you know that you are doglegging slowly down the mountain. None of the others realize what this means. You do not speak. The fog lifts to marry beautifully with the black starless sky. How can that sudden cold penetrate the car like that? The, heart, the hairs on your forearm and neck rise to attention, but it is not the cold. Two tiny orange specks, insignificant enough to mean nothing, away up the hill. You do not speak. You do not need the light of the day to see his movements recklessly hurtling over pine needles, pebbles and spiny undergrowth. Thorny bramble pulling at skin that no longer feels pain. He longs for it. It is close now. When the eyes are on your side of the car, you stare transfixed as they edge closer through the gloom. They are not close enough, but you see the huge pupils already fixed on you. But he does not come for the vehicle. He heads in a straight line down the mountain, the quickest route to his reunion. When the car rounds a hairpin, you do not try and follow the eyes. You rest your head back in your seat and you see them and you can hear him gasped frantic breath, but the clear repeating of his mantra of the misty mountains. The eyes cut off dog leg after dog leg, just getting bigger and glowing brighter and more manic. Strangely, now that it is certain, you do not feel tension. You are only transfixed on thick, fateful orbs. They propel towards you, and as Gollum's full body reveals itself from the shadow, you do not cry out. So it's quite a dream, <laughs> and we certainly can't do justice to all of it. And I will just acknowledge as well that, you know, dream work would ideally be done with the dreamer, so that what is coming alive in my psyche and your psyche is also then, you know, reflected back from their psyche, but we'll be working with our psyches and maybe that also lands uh, in a clarifying way in the dreamer's psyche and maybe it lands in, well, I'm sure it will land in different ways and multiple different ways with all our listeners. But I'm, I wonder, Molly, what's, what's alive for you from the dream? Hmm. I think, I like how I started that with I think, and that's certainly not what I'm, I'm doing. The feeling of dissent feels really uh, alive in the moving from mountain into the forest, that, that, that kind of, that movement downwards. Um, yeah, that for me at the moment feels uh, quite alive. I'm feeling it in my hips, actually. I'm kind of feeling like I want to even sink further into my chair. Hmm. It feels really in the Misty Mountains for me, which is something I think is so beautiful to acknowledge that I know what the Misty Mountains look and feel like. And the dreamer knows what the Misty Mountains look and feel like. And I'm finding my Misty Mountains in the dream. 
um, which I think you know speaks to this power of Tolkien that he he has crystallized and brought into form um, the imaginal, and then we get to share our experience of it. And yeah, that the sloping down through um, mountains and also the mist surrounding the oh, misty mountains. Duh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really. I've, I can picture, you know, Tolkien's um, illustration of it, but then f- find myself hurtling through the dream. And for me, there is a real sense of movement in the dream. I'm going to just put some of that language in. You've got gently sloping, arms outstretched, crossing a threshold, following a sharp left, quickly dropping away, dog-legging slowly, penetrating, rise to attention, reckless hurtling, edging closer, a straight line down, round a hairpin, rest your head, dog leg after dog leg, propel. A real sense of um, dynamic movement, which I also reminds me of Frodo's dream with uh, this, this wind hurtling and the, and the hooves galloping. And I wonder if there's a parallel even between this Kia, <laughs> this SUV, and the, the hurtling hooves of um, the Black Riders. Yeah, and also the um, the parallel between Frodo's dream of um, the which you talked about. You know, do, do I feel grounded? And at the beginning of Frodo's dream, there's this sense of like he is being lifted by by the elements or being lifted by the wind, and it feels like in this dreamer's dream that he's being lifted or moved by something that isn't his feet. You know, like it's mm. the gear. Um, so the sense of being swept by something that isn't, um, not that isn't chosen, but that is, that is certainly not the intentional direction. It feels like you're being pulled uh, by something that isn't, that isn't you. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the dreamer places themselves in the back seat from the rear seat of the sleek gray SUV and, you know, the experience of being in the back of a car that's driving recklessly is, is is horrendous and I, I'm really especially thinking of the hairpins um and the dog legs and how the terror in that and um you know but also the amount of time streamer says that they do not speak so yeah do not speak although you do not speak you do not speak you do not speak and finally you do not cry out so how when we are terrified you know imagine being in the back seat of the car but not being able to say slow down yeah <laughs> please yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah I don't feel safe can mm. you stop driving like that but I feel this desire to I don't know if it's a desire to say it do you think that the the, the not speaking is a is a decision or it's being forced to happen mm. I think for the the feeling that I get all this if I imagine myself in the back seat of the car um and especially with the fog as well you know sitting in the back seat when the driving is pretty reckless and with the fog must be terrifying and if I were to not to speak it potentially would be because I don't feel um like I would be heard by the people around me. If I chose not to speak, it would be because I don't think I would be listened to. Mm. So I don't know if there's an element there of, you know, these faceless figures and and maybe not 
knowing what their reaction would be? Yeah, I I feel a sense of safety in the faceless figures. And I think mm-hmm. it's partly to do with the um, title, which is that it, if Faramir had no face. So for me, it's all these faceless Faramirs, which I feel quite safe with. And also, you know, we we talked about Frodo as a, a key dreamer in Lord of the Rings. Faramir is also a, a key dreamer in Lord of the Rings. And so I think it's really interesting that he's here in the title of the dream and and from my my psyches placing Faramir in the driving seat and so I wonder what aspects of the you know like I spoke to um the dream ego isn't necessarily you know the conscious dreamer uh, mm-hmm. well, it's definitely it, it's not it's not necessarily the, the the version of us that we most are in our waking life and so I wonder how much the dreamer identifies with Faramir in their waking life but that there's so they're you know they're kind of conscious expression of themselves, um, conscious or unconscious actually, but this Faramir expression of themselves is driving, but the experience of the dream is from the back seat. And that dynamic between being in control and being behind, being um there's a it makes me think of the child as well. A child would be in a back seat. Mm. And also the um kind of the space between so like if we're thinking about the person in the back seat who is um uh experiencing the movement experiencing the fog experiencing the mountains and at that point the faceless is the what comes between we were talking about that earlier kind of that liminal space and that um what comes between the moon and frodo is the eagle and then what comes between the dreamer and all of what is in front is faceless Faramir. Mm. I've got this sense as well of the sudden cold that penetrates the car being what's between the the language is marry the fog lifts to marry beautifully with the black starless sky and so I feel like fog and black starless sky you have um, tangible emptiness in the fog and then you have endless, vast void, a starless sky, and then cold being the experience between the two. The, mm. These two, these two forces that marry, and then the the dreamer's senses are flooded with this sudden cold, which raises the hair on their forearms and neck. But it's not the cold that does that. But it's still this, which to me feels like terror. Yeah, and I'm going to be honest. When you, I don't remember the exact words that you just used ten seconds ago, um, but as you were describing the endless void of the starless sky, I had a real f- feeling of like, like of of fear, and like it, it, what an odd feeling to be like in fog, which feels also very scary because I don't know where I'm going, and then for that fog to be married to then dissipate into something that feels equally as yeah, I'm thinking for me. Yeah, I'm finding finding it as disorientation. Fog is disorienting because you can't um, see, and then a starless sky is disorientating because you cannot orient if you can't see. You know, if it's black, you can and but there's stars. You can orient to the stars. There's mm-hmm. a map, and it also means there's something out there, right? And the the meaning that humans have attributed to stars for millennia, um, you know we we find maps guidance wisdom in the stars and that's all gone 
it's a starless sky and that is yeah disorienting thing i'm almost disoriented to think <laughs> so disoriented i can't even speak but and again the movement of the car the hairpins that feels very disorientating to me as well mm. could you read the bit again um as they go from the mountains to the forest yes thank you from the rear seat of the sleek grey SUV, the path down the mountain reveals itself gently sloping through the barren boulder field before plunging directly into the withered leafless forest. Last sentinels, arms outstretched, ready to welcome a lost generation that they know deep in their roots may never return. Beyond that only fog, just as there always seems to have been. Hmm. I've got this real sense of um, the that when you read that again, um, I really honed in on the, um, the the lack of growth, the lack of anything. I think you there's the word barren, there's the leafless forest, and then um, the there was there was one more that, that I think there was like a like a roots, and then something about yeah that it feels like there's a real um, almost lack of life there. There's not this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also find that there's hope. The last sentinels, that's a, no, a noble image of those that stand and remain. And I really think of the Argonath, um, you know, and the River Anduin, that these two, you know, Aragorn, long have I desired to look on uh, the kings of old, my kin. Um, I think it's, is it Elendil and Isildur? I don't think it is. I think it's someone different. But anyway, those two um, kings of uh, Gondor of old were still standing there, their arms outstretched, yeah, ready to welcome the lost generation that they know deep in their roots may never return. Just really suddenly clarified an Aragorn there. Oh, yeah. Wow. And what it means to have these statues, these effigies and these symbols of devotion to this realm, this particular race and experience of, of men um, that the Argonath represents. Um, but I love the idea of the statue, the stone reaching deeper into the stone beneath, the earth beneath with this sense that, yeah, that, that realm that race of men may be lost forever. Mm. And something's just really coming to me about genocide. And the eradication of races, which is uh, has been proliferated by... Um, colonialism and Europeans, white people. And I'm, I'm going to speak to it, but I'm grateful I've got Jung to help me speak to it. Um, so this is a quote from um, Where the Shadows Lie, which if you are interested in this podcast, you've either read this book already or you have to read this book. It's called um, a Jung, Where the Shadows Lie, a Jungian interpretation of Lord of the Rings. Um, it's by Pia Skoderman. So yeah, just within that, the quote from the author is, we have to look west towards ourselves to find the roots of the systematic genocide in Europe in the ages of discovery, capitalism, and colonialism. 
And then it's talking about how Jung um, had an opportunity to meet Europeans as other um, through the eyes of a stranger when he talked to a chief of the Tao Pueblos, Ochoia Biano, and I pro- pro- apologize that I've probably um, totally mispronounced that. But the quote from Jung, um, Biano describes his his experience of whiteness, of the white man, and it and it triggers a experience in Jung, and this is Jung's experience of, of whiteness. I felt rising within me a shapeless mist, something unknown and yet deeply familiar, and out of this mist, image upon image detached itself. First Roman legions smashing into the cities of Gaul, the keenly incised features of Julius Caesar, the Roman eagle on the North Sea and on the banks of the White Nile, St. Augustine transmitting the Christian creed to the Britons on the top of the Roman lances, the pillaging and murdering bands of the crusading armies followed Columbus, Cortes, who with fire, sword and torture and Christianity came down upon even these remote Pueblos dreaming peacefully in the sun, their father. I saw too the peoples of the Pacific Islands decimated by fire, water, syphilis and scarlet fever. What we from our point of view call colonialization, missions to the heathen, spread of civilization, etc., has another face, the face of a bird of prey. And there's a few images in that. You know, we've spoken of the bird of prey already. This is flipping the eagle on its head, isn't it? But it's also, I really feel this, the rising within me, a shapeless mist, something unknown and deeply familiar. I feel like that's here in this dream. And the dreamer did share that they, I'm not sure if it was the night before or if it was just before, they were going to go and speak at a, um, I'm not sure if it was a, a Palestinian protest or it was something, you know, something about the genocide which is happening now as we talk. It's the 5th of November, 10,000 people, um, well, 12,000 people killed already under this um, genocide that's happening now. And so dreams are often collective as well is where I'm really trying to go that especially if we're in a vehicle which has other people in it so like a plane for example would be like oh okay that's a collective dream Um, whereas you on a bicycle that's an individual unconscious dream but what's in the shadow in the collective at the moment is this is colonialization and it is how power um, when in the hands of destruction um it it doesn't just twist and manipulate and contort it obliterates and sauron is also that particular shadow isn't he mordor is that shadow this this great shadow that is engulfing what is good and you know what is good as all of humanity you know my deep belief is that humanity is a good and beautiful thing but there's can also become this chasm which sucks that away um when power is is wielded in the way that is happening now so i've taken us out of the poetry because it feels really potent suddenly um to speak to this collective shadow which the dreamer themselves was going to go and speak to this collective shadow Mm -hmm. um at the event that they were going to attend and so i'm 
I'm interested that we've kind of landed there th- I, that, at the gateway to it being this lost generation that they know deep in their roots may never return. I didn't think that that would be our gateway into it. I thought it would be the mist, which is exactly what Jung speaks to in his acknowledgement of this collective shadow. Mm. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's um, really real. Um, and I know that the um, the dreamer who went to go and speak at the um, to speak at the the event in support of of Palestine actually had second thoughts about going up to the mic, and then they said that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they were standing in front of the mic and and speaking, and almost felt like they were speaking from a place that wasn't just them as an individual, which I think really speaks to, as you said, this um, this much deeper collective. Um... Oh, my God. I just was like, oh, my God, what's happening? It's bloody fireworks night, isn't it? It's fireworks just start going off. It's happening. Someone is here. Um, but, yeah, this kind of collective... Um, want to um you know to to see what's happening in palestine i think you know that there is also something really um potent about like the fog lifting and um maybe that being this kind of collective uh seeing of what's happening yeah um, wow yeah and you know like and and lifting the fog away to to face the shadow to understand what's happening because i think um you know uh the power of social media at the moment is that um these things are being more seen uh, and being um being brought brought to light and so i think something that that really struck me was the you know the the, the fog lifting and being this sense of um yeah of, of witnessing yeah. Also, of course, from the dreamers' experience of approaching that mic and not knowing if they would speak, the dream says so many times, you do not speak, you do not speak, you do not speak. Mm. Um, and then, of course, maybe that, that you know, we were talking about the dream ego being what's, you know, in shadow in their waking life, they do speak, they do stand there and they do. And I think it's not just, you know, what they're speaking to but in that moment speaking their truth Mm. um so i i don't know what they said but i know they were speaking from a non-dual perspective um to you know the the humanness that's at the heart of um what's happening uh but yeah i mean the the do not speak is what is really um you know, they, but also that you do not cry out. So when this confrontation with shadow finally happens at the end of the dream, where you know it's it's Gollum is initially lights um, of his eyes, them kind of moving closer, the the movement of Gollum across this the pine needles, pebbles, spiny undergrowth, thorny brambles, um, coming closer through the gloom. But then this straight line down the mountain. I feel like the the dreamer's experience then of speaking at this event is it was suddenly like a direct route to oh no I'm su- now I'm suddenly just speaking instead mm-hmm. of the you know when we speak publicly you know I I don't know how often you do it we obviously both do it as embodiment facilitators but that feels 
I feel then like I'm being guided, but, and I always try to, but say I've got to speak at work or I've got to speak publicly about something. You can do a really long, and in fact, I do it with planning embodiment classes as well. I can do a really long preparation where I almost script exactly what I'm going to say. Really, you know, roundabout way of lengthy way of getting there versus that you go there and you speak what's true. And I mm. always definitely prefer um, the moments when you know that what you're speaking is true. Yeah. And I think there's something that the dreamer spoke to about um, um, not really remembering what was said because it didn't come from a place of only, you know, it didn't come from a thinking function place. It didn't come from just them. It came from a much deeper place. And I think both both of us can speak to the experience of, uh, especially in facilitating embodiment where um, there is a... Um, a leaning back into uh guidance from something bigger um and how language then becomes like a tool um which yeah isn't only coming from um yourself so i really feel that experience of just you know being at a mic and all of a sudden being like oh what did i say yeah, um, yeah. It, didn't, it didn't come from just me it didn't, yeah, it didn't come from the thinking function. It came from a feeling place. And I think yeah. that's not always something that we remember as well. Um, we are running short on time. And I, it's so funny. I thought we would spend the whole time talking about Gollum as Shadow. We haven't even mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to mention it now? or Because obviously there is a whole episode on Gollum as Shadow where we might say things that we would say now, but I guess within the context of the dream, you know, what, what does it make you think about Gollum as representation of shadow? Hmm. Oh, hmm. I think for me, the, um, the rep, like Gollum for me represents like a real holding, like a real holding on, um and the yeah so or the image that i get is just this real tightness you know the unwillingness to let go the unwillingness to yield um and that for me feels really yeah it feels really alive in in Gollum's um grip um that he has but also the grip that the ring has on him um i don't know if you have any I'm really reminded, Molly, of um, you and I, not not just you and I, and, and Samavesha community in the shadow module um, of the Samavesha training last year. And you described shadow as feeling like you were listening at a door to the attic. And oh there were God. all of, there were all of these, you could hear all of this whispering, all of this talking. And when you opened the door, it was just loads of you having a conversation with each other. Um, and I, and I loved that. Um, I loved that. Thanks for bringing that in. I'd forgotten about that. Well, I think about it often because I loved that depiction of shadow. And I, I kind of recognize it in the faceless others who were in the car. Mm. Um, that these there's this mystery and it's like, do I am I safe with these faceless others? Um, where are they taking me? Um, have, have they got a driver's license? Um, <laughs> but also, you know, if I wonder if you they turned and looked at the dreamer if it would be the dreamer like in you you opened the door and it was all it was all you mm -hmm. um 
and because I, I think, you know, to think about shadow as, as not having to be, because in one aspect, Gollum is terrifying, right? And I, when I first heard the dream, I thought about myself as a child when I would have read The Hobbit when I was probably seven and like how terrified I was of Gollum in that before I'd ever seen, you know, Andy Serkis being Gollum, which at times is quite cute. Um, and, and it's easier to feel that pity. But my first experience of Gollum being terror, which I feel like is the the experience of Gollum as he approaches the car, the dreamer in this experience. But I also was listening to The Hobbit last night and the scene where Bilbo finds the ring, it's left at the end with Gollum screaming, last, last, my precious is last. And me being so wracked with grief um, for Gollum. And obviously, you know, the pity of Gollum is this thing. And I do think like approaching shadow with, with pity and deep compassion, I, I especially feel it here in the dreamer's language. Um, as, as Gollum's hurtling through this undergrowth, the language is thorny bramble pulling at skin that no longer feels pain. And I really get a sense of that skin that is so rough and so untended to, so unsensitized that it no longer feels pain. And me wanting to wrap my soft, sensitive, loving skin around that, that withered skin. I want to meet its hand with my hand and touch into it because I want it to be able to feel. Mm. I'm getting a bit emotional. About Gollum. Yeah, about Gollum. I know. It is. So, I mean, Gollum's story is so beautiful and sad. It is. I just need. I, I do need to name uh, another thing that's coming up for me um, about Gollum in relation to the dreamer. Um, and I have had permission from the dreamer that I can mention this. Uh, but in um, the Lord of the Rings tarot deck and your Hobbit deck, I believe as well. Uh, the Hanged Man is a depiction of Gollum. Um, and we speak, uh, I was speaking just a moment ago to the, the, the feeling of clinging and the, and, and that's a real sense that I get from Gollum, this kind of, this relentless holding on. And when we are invited into the space of the Hanged Man, we're, we're really, uh, invited or swept into kind of this the upside down version of ourselves where we can no longer grip and we can no longer hold on to and we, and the only thing we can do is to yield and i find it really interesting that that's the depiction because one of the central cards in a tarot reading that i just did for the for the dreamer was the hanged man mm. and so that imagery for the dreamer is coming back um again through you know through it through an, an another way through dream and through tarot of this um yeah this image of of gollum and the holding on and maybe even the card of the hanged man will have more meaning after listening to this podcast episode i wonder really reluctantly we do have to end because you and i have um a meeting <laughs> in one minute in one minute <laughs> <laughs> um, but I could have stayed in this dream for so long. Um, I've been really uh, inspired by this dream and by us doing this podcast to offer a Lord of the Rings dream Nidra. 
which will be something that listeners can listen to. If maybe you're thinking, I want to have a Lord of the Rings stream. Well, this will be my way of inviting your unconscious to do that. So it will be a short, it's basically a meditation you listen to when you go to sleep, but it will be, uh, you know, maybe we'll, maybe I'll meet you on the Misty Mountains or, or maybe it will be elsewhere. But um, I'll record that this week. So it will be ready by the time this podcast comes out and I'll release it on the same platform that you're listening to this podcast on. Um, and it's also selfishly because I want to have more Lord of the Rings streams. So if I create the Nidra, that's my best way of doing it. Um, and, you know, I offer that to you. If you have a Lord of the Rings dream and you'd like to offer it to us, we, of course, are so willing to receive it. I must say that the the announcement of the Nidra is something very new to me. So I'm extremely excited to uh, listen to that. And maybe uh, in the future, we can be analyzing one of my Lord of the Rings dreams. Oh, my God, Molly. Yes, I'm calling that into, mm. into presence. Yes. Mm. So, sweet listeners, big thank you to our dreamer for... Um, for sending us this message from their unconscious and letting us play with it and um, be be in relationship with it in in our podcast. Thank you to all our listeners for listening and um, thank you once again to Stephen Ernenwein who's going to play the beautiful music that carries us out of the dream realm and back into the rest of your day. Mm, thank you so much. Namarie. Namarie. Thank you for listening to For the Shire. We will meet you in the next chapter, but now go towards goodness. Namarie.